sort of a sabbatical of sorts just cranking away on my my book i have um a good chunk of it done and have the whole thing outlined and a title and all that and i've just really really been loving and enjoying the process you know i read i think it was stephen king that said that writing is refined thinking and uh so it's been actually coming just very easy uh going deep working on this as uh, and just really really enjoyable like i said like Putting these thoughts, having this outline, this uh, this linear flow of idea and narrative, and then just um, refining that and making it more clear and um, articulate and all of that type of thing. Uh, so a long ways off from now, these things, of course, take a long time, but a year from now or whatever, um, I'll be looking forward to sharing that with you all. But it's going well, and I'll keep you up to date as I write thousands and thousands and thousands of words. <laughs> um, today on my podcast is a really, really fascinating fellow, um, Dr. Judson Brewer. He is an MD and PhD. Uh, he combines 20 years of his experience with mindfulness training and uh, his scientific research. So he uses those things to uh, kind of in a symbiotic way to help inform each other. Uh, he's the director of research at the Center for Mindfulness uh, and an associate professor of medicine and psychiatry at UMass Medical School. He's also adjunct faculty at Yale and a research affiliate at MIT. Perhaps the most qualified guest we have ever had uh, on the Astro Hustle here. Uh, he did a TED Talk called A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit that has racked up almost 8 million views. Uh, it's really, really great. And we actually go into sort of this. Uh, and also he uh, has a book called The Craving Mind. Uh, the topics of those and what we go into the podcast uh, a good deal is his approach to using mindfulness to become aware and recognize the psychological and physiological changes that occur before you indulge in a craving or an addiction or uh, some type of compulsive behavior. So he's sort of chasing it upstream a little bit and helping you uh, just be more aware before you mindlessly execute those things. So really, really great podcast. Obviously, Judson is a, a extremely intelligent person, and it was fascinating to hear him talk about his work and his research, and I hope you all uh, really enjoy it. And as always, thank you so much for rating uh, the Ask Russell on iTunes. I've seen more ratings coming in. We're almost to 200. Um, we're like, I think, 15 away or something like that. It would be so awesome. Let's let's see if we can break 200. And again, in connection with the book, I know it seems weird and silly, but this is how things work. Like whenever I end up taking that book um, with my agent to meetings and and uh, you know with editors and publishers and things like that, they'll look at things like my podcast and my uh, rating numbers and you know all fits into the fold so it really helps me in a lot of different ways and it helps you because uh, also whenever I, I invite people to come on the podcast they check out the the ratings to kind of get a, an objective sense of how popular my podcast is isn't even though it doesn't really um mean so much uh as far as numbers go but people do look at that so if you do that i'll be I'll be more likely to get more guests that you want to hear so thank you as always and uh, I hope you have a beautiful day, a beautiful week, and until next time, much love, my friends. Uh, yeah, I was interested if you could just tell me a little bit about your background, about how you, what 
initially brought you towards mindfulness and all the things that you're pursuing now? Uh, let's see. I was suffering. any particular forms of suffering many forms i didn't even know the multiple forms of suffering Mm. that i was undergoing (laughs) i was suffering so much uh one that particularly uh nailed me was uh, going through a bad relationship breakup right before starting medical school Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so um what type of thing did you come across that led you to the all of the um, different paths of mindfulness and Eastern thought and so forth? You know, it's interesting. I don't even remember how this happened, but it's ironic because I'm I'm now work at the you know at the Center for Mindfulness. We jokingly call it the house that John built. But I um, <laughs> I had this John Kabat-Zinn book land in my lap called Full, Full Catastrophe Living. Mm-hmm. And started, I read a little bit of it and I started listening to the cassette tapes back then and um, started meditating on my first day of medical school. Wow, that's what a fascinating um, dichotomy, juxtaposition, um, crossroads, everything. It's really, really interesting on your first day of medical school and what perfect timing. Um, so you're like, uh, your work in addiction is is very very interesting to me, particularly now, given that the you know I feel like the internet is. <laughs> I was joking with a friend of mine recently in the the Buddhist wheel of life. You know, I think that the internet has grown this new realm, which is the uh, hungry god realm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, the hungry I am realm or hungry pay attention to me realm. Right. <laughs> there right. are many realms in the internet. <laughs> Indeed. That are not particularly helpful. <laughs> so what do you do? You think that it that it um, like I, I have this kind of theory or idea that in in some sense the internet obviously makes people extremely egocentric because you can basically just have this pure output of nothing but your own identity in the exact way that you're sub, you subjectively want to try and put it forth to everyone else. So you get to put this one percent of your internal being out, you know, into what seems like an infinite universe or a uh, replication of such on the internet. However, I have this, I, this kind of feeling or the sense that the counterbalance to that is also true in that whenever people are looking at, you know, just their normal uh, movement through the internet world and there's all these different users and all these different comments and, you know, there's, you look at one post and there's, oh, there's 5,000 likes, there's 20,000 likes. That means that not only it, it, do I like this, but 19,999 other people also like this single article. And it makes me wonder if people get a sense of their, um, you know, that th- that they are just a grain of sand flowing through the infinity on the beach of time. You know, an idea about the massive amount of other beings and people out there, even in a subconscious way, you know, b- because there's so much feedback coming from the internet, and that causes almost this other form of, of dissonance or what I've termed like existential paralysis in the sense that you start waking up to your own infinity and your own impermanence and how you are one piece of a you know the hand which has seven billion people on it so um do you ever do you ever think about that at all or, or get some sense that, that that's something people are struggling with or that's a repercussion of the internet 
I would guess that some of them are struggling with that, yes. And I would guess that a whole bunch of people just get a big dopamine hit when they get likes. (laughs) (laughs) Unquestionably. Unquestionably. Yeah, so I I think that we can look at it at very many different levels, yet on the most basic level, Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's something rewarding about getting likes, and there's good neurobiology behind that. What do you think that, like, what what is that reward? Well, it's interesting that you say reward. I, I think of reward from a brain pathway standpoint. So mm-hmm. from an evolutionary perspective or from a survival perspective, reward helps us learn things. So, for example, you know, you see food, you eat food, and you get this reward to your brain that says, oh, that's, there's some calories there. You should remember what you ate and where you found it, right? So, mm-hmm. that's, that's the most basic type of reward-based learning, uh, and that's actually evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. So, reward, though, is interesting because as humans, we've somewhere in history, uh, and somebody kind of traced this back to Shakespearean times, but this anticipation and this uh, this contracted feeling that comes with that dopamine hit was, uh, I want to say, juxtaposed or even conflated with happiness. Uh, so this, this excited quality of, oh, I'm about to eat some ice cream or, oh, I'm about to have some sex or, oh, I'm about to do something – uh, got conflated with happiness, and then you know the advertising world took it over from there and said, "Hey, <laughs> we mm-hmm. can profit from this because we can get you to want things that mm-hmm. way." Mm-hmm. So, it, it I you know the excitement piece, that contraction, that anticipation, that feeling of oh, I need to do something. When we really look at it carefully, how rewarding is it from a human standpoint? I think of it more as these are results, these are consequences. When we really dive into the actual experience, it's not actually that rewarding. Right. Especially how could it be if it's something that people are doing every 30 seconds or something like that? (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? It's like you don't need to eat every 30 seconds to feel full, but yet you need to, people need to like and get likes and are refreshing their phones every 30 seconds in order to feel satiated. Right. I don't, I don't know if you remember the end of the uh, movie about Facebook. Was it called The Social Network? Mm, so, like, the last scene is this really dark where, you know, the, the, the main character, you know, who's supposed to be Zuckerberg, who just friends this, um, this cute lawyer, you know, that was on his team. And he just sits there refreshing and refreshing and refreshing, waiter, waiting for her to accept his, his <laughs> friend invitation. And it's really, it's like, oh my God. Wow. That, that <laughs> rat, this... rat pressing lever. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And it's also like, if you, that just the motion of the thumb refreshing, it's almost like this weird robotic masturbatory motion too if you look at it. it's like obsessive you know deeply rooted you know psychological thing happening um yeah well um, what do you i mean this the smartphone uh i'd love just to hear your take on like the the what we kind of covered the why a little bit and then perhaps um you know, maybe what's next as far as like how the addiction to smartphones it has and is affecting our society and culture right now. Sure. So the, say more about the what? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And you know, just kind of say more about, um, 
you know, how it's affecting people uh, and then why it's affecting people in that oh, way, which we kind of covered a little bit. <laughs> and then perhaps moving forward, um, you know, what will the future hold for, for, for that interaction with humans potentially? Yeah. Well, the impact has been remarkably large very quickly. You know, the iPhone just turned 10 years old. And apparently in London, they have to wrap the light poles with padding so people don't hurt themselves as they walk into them now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, in New York City, they would paint on the crosswalks, look up, uh, because people are walking into the street so pedestrian accidents are on the rise uh you know childhood playground um like below the age of five accidents somebody did a study where they could actually track the um emergency room the pediatric emergency room visits uh and they tracked that these were um increased as the AT&T network rolled out the iPhone ac across different cities <laughs> so, wow. because because parents aren't paying attention to their kids. Uh, so I think we see it in all sorts of ways. You know, you see it in restaurants, the prototypical two people on a date with their phone. Oh, and they happen to be sitting across from somebody. Right. Uh, and, oh, right. The person right. they're supposed to be on a date with. <laughs> right. You know, it's it's everywhere uh you stop at a stoplight in your car and you it's at night and you you look around and everybody's crotch is growing glowing <laughs> blue you know it's like uh nobody can stand sitting at a red light for 30 seconds anymore mm -hmm. you know there's these these uh <laughs> these tools of mass distraction as somebody put it so that it's it's pretty remarkable uh, how you know how we're seeing all the different effects on people, uh, and so why that's happening. You know, we talked a little bit about that. It's really the first time that we have these distraction devices at our fingertips, where anytime we feel uncomfortable about something, we can whip it out mm -hmm. and you know, distract ourselves or even, you know, it's the <laughs> in college and beyond where, you know, somebody doesn't know the answer to something and they feel uncomfortable about that mm. instead of resting in that. Well, you know, I don't know the answer. They're like, I'm going to know the answer in 30 <laughs> seconds because Google's going to help me. Right. Uh, so this whole thing about, you know, having to know the answers to even trivial things that aren't that important, uh, there's, you know, that's all rewarding. It's like, oh, now I know the answer to this trivial thing and I'll forget it in 30 seconds. But now I know the answer and my brain's pretty happy right now. Or at least it's it's satisfied that it, my brain's craving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so those are just some examples. <laughs> sure, yeah. And it's almost like I, f I feel like it's a way to move further into a self-delusion as well. You know, like you don't have to acknowledge your lack of knowing something or i think there's such a huge part of the human experience in the you know just the humbling of the fact that you are just a person like everyone else and learning from other people having that interaction in the learning process whether it be socially or in an academic setting i think is is really just as valuable as the learning itself in a lot of ways um well and here's where we start missing out on life because mm -hmm. right? we're not 
we're not looking at each other when we're having conversations because our our phone is is calling to us you know it's that siren call that, <laughs> <laughs> that's trying to crash our you know pull us into the rock so that our our boat crashes yeah. that's really you know that's our life you know how often do we walk down the street just looking around mm-hmm. <laughs> oh i could be checking my phone as i'm walking down the street why would i want to look at the trees and the flowers and the plants and the other people that's ridiculous <laughs> right <laughs> right right or at the very least look at it through an app on your phone which you know tells you some information about whatever you're looking at as the the camera scans across actual tactile reality you know the, those type of apps are things where you you're meant to like look at the stars and, and i know there's a bit of learning going on um but the apps where you like look at put your phone at the stars and then it shows you like recognizes the geometry of different constellations and will show you on the screen of your phone like you know this is that constellation this is that constellation it's an interesting learning tool but at the same time it's just kind of sad to me it's like just just look just look up there you know right well so yeah i can tell you something and then put your phone away <laughs> and then just rest in the vastness of it all because exactly. uh, our phone isn't going to rest in the vastness of it all for us <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> totally um yeah so I, you know do you have any idea or any thoughts about like how this will continue to unfold you know i i tend to think about um you know people seem to just as far as what i've observed in my own life you know in the artistic world and things like that is that people get really interested in one thing and gets you know it gets almost to this breaking limit and then there's this natural resistant sort of um shift where people start recognizing it whenever it maximizes and then they begin to there are even cultural moves in, in popularity it becomes the thing to you know putting putting that away moving away from whatever the thing was that became so popular and i, I wonder now if, if that's approaching anytime soon with smartphones yeah it's an interesting question and i'm not sure that the answer is uh is promising so Mm -hmm. for example uh with cigarette smoking you know uh, there was (laughs) you know back in the 80s in the u.s the congress you know the the all the tobacco manufacturers had to testify in kind of front of congress saying tobacco is not you know our cigarettes are not addictive they got busted for that so then the tobacco industry bought the food industry because they know how to get people addicted and now they're going through the same thing with food oh we're not making food addictive well kind of we are Mm -hmm. uh you know the tech industry hasn't gone up in front of congress yet uh, but i'm not sure that congress has the attention span to take them uh to have a congressional hearing because they're all on their phone (laughs) so i you know, technology, especially as we look at all these, you know, these self-referential uh, social media pieces, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or whatever, um, you know, and these things are designed uh, in many cases to become as sticky as possible because it's a big money maker for folks. Uh, so it's not like suddenly with cigarettes, people are like, oh, you know, Ah, cigarettes they're so 50s Mm -hmm. i'm gonna stop smoking Uh, my patients they're like dude i'm so addicted to these cigarettes i don't know anything i can do to quit smoking and the same thing is with you know with our folks we have this eat right now program this um app-based program for, for mindful eating helping people with their emotional and stress eating and they're 
they're just as addicted to those same habit patterns as as my patients who are trying to quit smoking. So I don't see, you know, it's not like suddenly people are like, you know, ice cream, ah, I'm, I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm over that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so technology, I don't see it being any different. Uh, and in fact, it is extremely seductive the way that a lot of this stuff happens. Uh, so it's not like we can, st- you know, we can stop smoking. We don't have to smoke to survive. It's more challenging to stop eating, right? We do have to eat to survive. And technology is so ubiquitous. It's not like we can stop having smartphones. Uh, it's a matter of really seeing what we're actually getting from this stuff. I think that's really how behavior is going to change, but I don't see it as a passing trend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In thinking, as you were talking about that, it seems that um, whenever those things seem to, the, th- the things that are in culture and they're addictive for a long period of time, for decades and so on, that they tend to sort of get refined and shifted a little bit. So when you were talking about smoking, I started thinking about vaping. Like I live in mm-hmm. Austin. I never see people smoking hardly, but you know, I see people vaping all the time. And with ice cream, you mentioned ice cream. People don't eat ice cream here unless it is, you know, farm to table, like some particular, uh, craft, small batch type of, you know, <laughs> bourbon, uh, salted, whatever, you know, type of thing. So they're still eating it, but it's sort of been like, I don't know. It's, it's been made crafty in some way, artisanal. Sure. You know? So, um, th- that's interesting uh counterpoint you know and and who knows what that will what that will be with technology and smartphones i you know, i have a, a a vision of the future of facebook whenever they have you know, one time this is where i hooked up what was it that i had something something around that and they facebook asked to, to check in with the the um um heart app on my phone Mm-hmm. And that just gave me this horrible vision of like the future, you know, they're reading your, the biometrics on your body, the sweat that you're expelling out of your pores and, and uh, your pulse and all that stuff. So when, as you're scrolling through your timeline and instead of liking things, it's taking these like biometric readings of how your pulse changes, how, you know, your body temperature changes, your skin temperature, your, your moisture of your skin and so forth, your pupil dilation, cause it's looking at you through the camera, uh, your, you know, the selfie camera on your phone. And so it gives this deeply, deeply algorithmic like expression of your biological reaction, which is beyond your frontal mind, like logical control. And it paints this like rainbow colored algorithm of of your emotional and subconscious response. And that's your like, that's like your, your feedback to the thing. So then, you know, as your friends are uh, seeing how you've interacted with their post, that causes this whole new world of weird, um, you know, Skynet-y type of thing where it's like, hey, man, I, you know, I posted this picture of me out at this concert and uh, I didn't see you have a real genuine emotional reaction. Your pupils didn't dilate at all whenever you saw that post. I mean, you <laughs> liked it and everything, but, you know, looking at the biometric reading from Facebook, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I'm a little offended by that. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> right, or it's the all the robo likes that happen when the these teenagers have to get up in the morning. It's like their job to like all their friends' Instagram posts. Otherwise, uh-huh. their friends get angry, and it's like, oh, I have to, you know, it's like I have to spend an hour clicking on likes, just <laughs> right. scrolling through them and clicking as fast as I can, so that then I can, you know, go have breakfast. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a really, really bizarre aspect of like being tribal creatures that are separated in space and time, you know, but yet still following the tribal rules in some way, you know, the gregarious rules of inclusion. Um, and this has made it where I guess the, you know, the ultimate thing that I see how this is damaging and what it's taking is just time and awareness. And, you know, I was traveling through Europe recently and just not having a cell phone. And I, I have to say, I'm actually really good about my phone, you know, 90% of the time. Um, I typically just go put it in the other room because I'm actually, I get, it's a source of irritation for me because I saw, you know, getting pulled into that world of constantly refreshing all these things. And at some point I just thought, you know, what, what am I doing? This is just, it was fun at one point and it crossed over this threshold into mania in some way. And I could, re- I recognize the obsessive, um, just reflexes in my brain wanting to go do that and refresh it's where i'm like refreshing instagram and then facebook and then twitter and then instagram again i'm like whoa whoa, hold on a second hold on a second the endless cycle so it's interesting because you know whether you look at modern day psychology and they uh talk about you know these positive and negative reinforcement loops you know or you go all the way back to ancient buddhist psychology they describe the same thing you know this was actually so fascinating to me that i wrote an entire book about this because there are so many different ways that we get caught in those loops you know it's it's amazing how crazy this is. Wow. Please tell me about it. Oh, well, (laughs) the book's called the craving mind Mm -hmm. uh, from, let's see, I should know the subtitle by now from smartphones to uh, from cigarettes to smartphones to love why we get hooked and how we can break bad habits. And the idea is, you know, we get stuck in this binary Skinnerian um, habit loop. Think of it as, you know, ones and zeros, um, positive and negative. So, oh, if I eat ice cream, it feels good. So I should do it some more. Oh, if I get yelled at by my partner, or my boss, I should eat some ice cream so mm-hmm. I can make that bad feeling go away. And we're just constantly approaching and avoiding, approaching and avoiding, approaching and avoiding living in this, you know, this world of just constant reactivity as compared to prospectively living our lives. And so we can get caught in every, you know, habit loops around social media, like you and I talked about. And there's, you know, in in one of my chapters, I talk about all the neurobiology where, you know, we get dopamine spritzes from Instagram likes and things like that. Um, There's even, you know, another chapter on being addicted to ourselves Mm -hmm. because, you know, there's something that gets, you know, where we get our 15 seconds of fame on you know getting our, our um, 
Twitter, you know, post going viral or whatever, uh, there's even being addicted to distraction because it's the same type of thing, the same habit loop where we, you know, we feel bad. And so there are all these ways that we can distract ourselves so we can get addicted to that as compared to living our life. We can even get addicted to romantic love, uh, very similar neural pathways and all of that stuff. So, you know, and of course, I don't, I'm not writing like a doomsday book. <laughs> Um, but the beautiful thread there is that whether you look at uh, operant conditioning, you know, positive and negative reinforcement, mm-hmm. or if you look at the ancient Buddha psychology, it's the same thing. You know, these guys described this process before paper was even invented. Wow. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. Yeah. And so it's like, this could not be a coincidence. And this is actually what got me really interested in, in moving my research career in this direction. You know, I'd started meditating just so I could be you know, less of a jerk and less stressed out. <laughs> uh, but in fact, you know, I was like, wow, there's something really to this. And there's a, you know, and so I devoted my entire scientific career to this. And uh-huh. my, you know, most of my clinical practice and my addiction psychiatry clinic is, is based on this. And the beauty of this is through, through this process, if we can really understand the process itself, we can actually hack it. So we can hack into the same reward-based learning process to overcome it, which seems crazy, but it's true. And we actually have solid clinical data, you know, like our one of our smoking studies, we got five times the quit weights of gold standard treatment in our, we studied this Eat Right Now app that we have, um, and we found that we got 40% reduction in craving-related eating um, in overweight and obese individuals. So this is stuff that we're we're really we're really seeing, and that's actually what um, what the second half of the book is about is actually laying out how we can tap into this reward-based learning process. And so we can use it to improve concentration. We can use it to become more resilient. Uh, and we can even use it to get into flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if you think of what do I mean by tapping into it? Well, if you think of the basic elements, it's like trigger, behavior, reward, like see food or get stressed, let's say, eat food, feel better. So that's the trigger, behavior, reward. Uh, if stress is the same trigger, what if we get curious? So we move from an extrinsic reward. So eating food's extrinsic, right? Because we have to use something outside of ourselves to feel better. But what if we tap into something internal or intrinsic? Curiosity comes from within, right? Oh, what's this stress feel like in this moment, right? This is what these practices are all mm-hmm. about. The reward moves from the excitement of eating ice cream to this intrinsic reward that that comes with curiosity. Curiosity actually feels good. And we've even mapped this out on a neurobiologic level where uh, we can even tell the difference between that contracted quality of excitement, you know, which falls more in the spectrum actually of fear and anger, right? When we're afraid, we're contracted. When we're not afraid, when we're joyful or we're being kind, that feels more expanded, right? Curiosity falls more into the expanded spectrum. So, we're actually looking at completely different rewards, ones that are, you know, contracted in quality with excitement, which some people 
you know, they're like, what excitement that's expanding. No, look at it carefully <laughs> compare, right. compare it to joy. Cause excitement says do something yeah. or I'm about to get something. Whereas joy says, no, I'm cool. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm just going to sit here in the vastness of it all and drink it in. Right. Right. I don't, I don't need anything. So there's a lot of equanimity there. Yeah. Like look at a cat about to pounce. Like it's excited. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's right on the edge of its toes about to jump, but it's tense, you know? Yeah, because it's about to eat. <laughs> right, right. That's so really, we're about to pounce on that ice cream. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, mouse. And fortunately, at one of those craft artisanal places, you could probably found find mouse flavored ice cream. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably. Um, that's really fascinating. It's it's interesting for me to hear you talk about the excitement of the craving. Um, and that's got to be a huge, you know, in a psychological kind of neurological zone. That's that's got to be a huge part of all addictions, right? Yes, so it is. What it's is that, that driving force that says, mm-hmm. do something, whether it's excitement, like, oh, I'm about to have sex, mm-hmm. or it's the, oh, come on, I'm, you know, I am withdrawing from heroin, do something, make me feel better. So it's both the positive and negative reinforcement that both drive that that urge to do something. That's fascinating. So do you think that is in some ways kind of the step before and then plug in most random, you know, uh, obsessive addictive kind of behaviors. Do you, do you think yes. that you think, okay, interesting, interesting. Anything that has that drive to it. Yeah. I have, I've, I'd be happy to be proven wrong, but that's my working hypothesis. And so far it's been several years and there hasn't been anything that has, uh, that has proven that wrong yet, mm. but I'm happy to find that exception. Right. Right. And so is a part of, um, the work that you're doing, tapping into you using mindfulness and just an increased self-reflective awareness to be able to recognize the swelling of that excitement feeling and then stopping it there before the actual execution takes place. Yeah. And the nice thing is we don't have to do anything to stop it. Mm-hmm. It's This is where awareness comes in. Mm-hmm. So t- typically our response is, oh, there's something happening. I need to do something. That's a very cognitive response. Mm-hmm what we can do is we can drop back and instead of doing, you know, one of my, one of the people, um, we're, we're testing out this anxiety program now. And somebody said, I feel like I'm a human doing rather than a human being, you know? <laughs> so we're constantly doing, 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 we can drop back and just rest in this wide open, wide eyed, curious awareness and be with whatever's happening. We don't have to do anything about the craving. We just watch it mm-hmm. and, and we can get fascinated. Oh, what's it feel like in my body right now? Oh, it's tightness, it's tension, it's burning, it's whatever. And oh, wow, it changes. Oh, wow. And, you know, we can even flip the valence of it. Mm-hmm. So cravings typically say do something, so they're not that pleasant. But in that moment that we can drop into curiosity, what does curiosity feel like? Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Mm, I think it's quite pleasant. Yeah. So we can we can flip that valence from the unpleasant craving that says do something to this wide-eyed wonder that says, oh, wow, check that out. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so in this, you've worked with uh, drug addictions with this, I assume, right? 
yeah, I'm a, I work every week <laughs> with mm-hmm. patients with all sorts of addictions. Mm-hmm. Yes. I just picture, I'm, I'm picturing how, um, it's fascinating that that would be effective for someone who was, you know, addicted to heroin and wanting to try and feed that addiction, but being able to use that practice to dissuade their own kind of what's become a, a but so the, the biological part of like the, the, the chemical part of the body that's in pain from not receiving the chemical feeding dose of a drug does not over control and, and kind of overextend to the higher mind. Cause I'm picturing the lower like mammalian brain is where the chemical addiction is. And then the upper intellectual brain is where the awareness part is. So it seems like the mammalian oh. would sort of overtake in some ways. No, I, I'm no, I don't okay. think, well, I don't know, but I would say, Awareness is actually at the lower level. We mm-hmm. can be aware and we can be hyper aware, whether we're in pain or with or withdrawing from heroin or whatever. There's awareness there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take a lot of effort. <laughs> it actually doesn't take any effort to be aware. That higher level is the part that says, I'm going to not, I'm going to force myself not to use. So it, this isn't like it's magic and, um, you know, suddenly we can overcome all of our addictions, but it start. it actually starts at a at the very basic level Uh, so let's unpack this a little bit so if you think of reward-based learning it's really based on these quote-unquote rewards that our brain gets right so if we look really fully at those rewards and in human terms i think of this as effects or outcomes or results we can see that each time we smoke a cigarette that you know we our teeth are yellow our our breath smells bad, whatever. Um, or in the moment of smoking a cigarette, it doesn't even taste that good. But we have to pay attention for to see that clearly. When we do see that clearly, that's when we recalibrate our brains. Mm-hmm. And they say our brain, the re- our brain says, oh, that's not as rewarding as I thought. With heroin, for example, if you're completely high, obviously it's a little harder to pay attention when you're high, but you can pay attention afterwards. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm withdrawing again. Oh, I have to keep taking more heroin to perpetuate this process. It's never ending. Oh, I just got fired from my job. Oh, I my you know uh, boyfriend or girlfriend just broke up with me because I stole money from you know and and we can look at all of the results that come from these habitual behaviors and really you know I think of it as like rubbing our face in it right. like well what do I really get from this and I I start with that simple question you know just ask yourself what do I get from this so everything from the anticipation to how long the high lasts to how good it is to all the ramifications that come from that you know it's with cocaine and heroin a lot of it's just uh, trying to get back to normal to you know move out of withdrawal mm-hmm. as compared to actually feeling high feeling great mm-hmm. um, that that quickly shifts from you know the high of cocaine for example to the jonesing to um, you know feel a little bit better and the funny thing is many many people p- feel pretty paranoid when they're on cocaine mm-hmm. so right <laughs> that part's not that great either so there are all these you know that's about that's the piece that we start with in hacking that system and say real well, let's see what those rewards really feel like and it's only then that the momentum starts to build 
to be able to ride out the cravings. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people are good at it pretty early, but for many people, we really have them really pay attention to what those re- results or those outcomes are because that helps build that disenchantment. And the disenchantment's really, really key for changing behavior because then our brain says, oh, why don't you go smoke some more crack or whatever? And then we're like, well, last time, you know, it wasn't that great. <laughs> um, oh, that's just a habit. Oh, I don't have to do this. And that's when we get motivated to, and then, then we start teaching them to really pay attention. Okay, get curious about this. What does this feel like? What happens when you ride out a craving? It actually feels pretty good. It's very empowering to be in control again, where we were completely out of control, you know, a slave to our cravings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, then you can get addicted to getting over addictions, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be a great addiction to have. Sure would, yeah. Um, yeah this addicted is, to paying attention. Right. Wow, I've never been hit by a bus. That's a pretty good addiction to have, you know? <laughs> pay attention when I look, when I cross the street. <laughs> um, I pay attention to my, to my partner or my spouse. Wow, oh, wow, I have a better relationship with them because I'm actually listening. <laughs> That's a terrible addiction to have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so all, all this actually is sort of like making me think of the way where if you you know cl- the classic example of someone drinking too much and then like having this horrible hangover the next day and really feeling you know that and like oh god all right i'm never gonna drink that much again and it's it's really interesting that you've taken that sort of like long-term dynamic of that experience which most people have had at least once in their life um and then moved it towards all these other other things just by the the process of functioning um, that's really really fascinating man it's it's a what a, what a great system uh to to try and wake people up to that because i mean you obviously know this but i'm just it's all resting in my brain freshly and and yeah i mean I, the part of the um yeah the, the part of the mind which would recognize to disengage with that is just a, a clear reality of that thing yeah it's so fascinating well, if our brains work really well at learning things, you know, we, we're not going to be able to fight that. Our prefrontal cortex is not strong enough. It's, it's the first part of our brain that goes offline when we get stressed out. Mm-hmm. So, if we can't beat it, you know, this is where we hack it, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what we're doing. And it's beautiful because we don't have to come up with some new theory, you know, like, this is Dr. Brewer's new theory. <laughs> then I have to go out there and protect my theory. Right. Well, what if <laughs> I'm not smart enough to do any of that stuff, but I can look to see what has been most evolutionarily conserved, and I can say, oh, there's probably something there, and lo and behold, there is. And the Buddhists figured that out a long time ago. Yeah. They're much smarter than I am. <laughs> how, do you, how do you think that that happened? Uh, well, they weren't distracted by their smartphones. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's... It's it's beautiful. This there was this meditation teacher named S. N. Goenka. I think he was Indian. Um, he he died just a couple of years ago, but he you know he had this. I love. He was quoted in in Tricycle Magazine saying that the Buddha was a super scientist. 
you know, like the, this, this, this guy that figured all this stuff out without graduate students to torture or <laughs> animals to do experiments on or computers or fancy statistics. He just sat down and he watched his own mind. And, you know, it's even says in like the, the first, this, this first sutta, you know, that described as like setting the whole wheel in motion. Right. Uh, he was contemplating what he called dependent origination. And that's that's when he awoke. He's like, oh, I see how this works. And it works in everything. And that's what, you know, Eric Kendall got the Nobel Prize for in 2001. So 2,500 years later, <laughs> uh, sea slugs, mm-hmm. same type of learning probably slightly different level of consciousness uh but the the learning process is the same and so you know i don't know how he figured it out but he he nailed it he totally nailed it hmm. Hmm. yeah wow um you know and obviously the one of the largest portions of buddha's work is to reduce suffering you know that's one of the the main interests you know there which uh i i think is um incredibly beautiful in uh as just a pursuit in itself i feel like a lot of these things you know with with these addictions and and just the lack of attention and so forth and all the distractions that people are really prey to now i feel like it's uh almost a way of removing and dulling your awareness because if you were to have more awareness of the present you would actually have to you would wake up to what you were actually dealing with the actual trauma the actual suffering that you're feeling and then you'd have to confront it and interact with it um do you find do you you ever feel or, or observe that people are doing that these are layered processes where people are trying to just find some way to not have to acknowledge their own their own suffering yes and i'm really glad you bring this up because i think this is a as a multi-tiered process Mm -hmm. you know there's there's a breaking point i think where we've tried every trick in the book to make ourselves feel better to avoid the suffering and it's only when we see really clearly that none of those things are going to work that we're that our minds say okay you know let's try something new Mm -hmm. i think that's a really really critical piece because even people even join spiritual um you know spiritual movements or or do you know they'll even you know oh i'm meditating but in fact there can be a lot of spiritual bypassing as part of that where you know it's just a way to kind of distract themselves uh from what's going on oh I, i was really focused on my breath okay what did you learn from that well, I was really focused on my breath, <laughs> yeah. you know. So, so a mantra meditation that gets you really focused on your breath isn't going to relieve suffering if you can't see how the mind works. If you can't see cause and effect clearly, you know. If you can't see operant conditioning clearly in, in modern day terminology, so that first level is seeing that all of these these distraction or self-referential or whatever, you know, all of these patterns don't actually bring us lasting happiness. They actually just leave us exhausted at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. That's when we're ready to take it to the next level and become really interested in seeing, oh, well, okay, this isn't working. Why isn't it working? And that's, that. for a lot of people, that is, that's a tough one, tough pill to swallow because they're just, their brains are just so 
trying to, you know, stay in the old ways of being and saying, no, 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 it'll work this time. It'll work this time. I promise. Mm -hmm. Just do it again. Just do it again. Uh, so that next level is just completely different where we're, we get interested and actually turn toward that suffering. I think of it as, um, I don't know where I heard this, but it's like bowing to it as a teacher. Mm -hmm. So, oh, here's something that caused me pain. My habitual reaction is to turn away. Well, what happens when I say, oh, can I learn something from this? And we actually turn toward it to say, what can I learn about my own mind from this? Okay, you just yelled at me, and my habitual reaction is to either run away or to yell back. If I see clearly that those... Either, neither of those would fix the problem, then I can suddenly uh, open instead of close down, right? Habitually close down to protect myself. I can open and say, oh, what can I learn from this? And then we start exploring the causes and the effects, right? The causes of our suffering. And then we start to see, oh, it is about this uh, habitual reactivity. It's when I contract around something, when I take something personally. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, there's more suffering there. It doesn't fix anything. I just start, you know, trying to hold on to my views more. You know, we even see this in the in the political structures where no matter what side of the aisle you're on, it's like my side is right and your side is not just wrong but awful and terrible and horrible. Well, that's not going to get us anywhere. Right. <laughs> You know, it's about saying, "Oh, well, let me understand your point of view," which is not what we're seeing these days. <laughs> yeah, and and that, that suggests that somebody would recognize that there was such a thing as a point of view as opposed to a purely objective truth, which they're, they have a, they have a vantage point and can see clearly, you know. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. That's why one of the things I stress so much on, on my podcast, actually, is just the, the, just the whole concept of subjective perception. I think that was a huge turning point for me, you know, whenever uh, I was in my, like, late teens, really waking up to the fact that I read no, enough Alfred Korzybski and, uh, you know, and Bucky Fuller at the same time that it hit me over the head and I, I realized one day it was like uh, cracking the egg, you know, is kind of what mm -hmm. I've called it. It's like once you crack the egg of your own subjective perception, it can't be uncracked because yeah. once you wake up to the fact that your body is a nervous system taking a reading of the world outside of your skin and abstracting a subjective perception, you know, based on your past experience and genetics and history and so forth, then you realize that, oh, I'm neither right nor wrong. I just yeah. am. I'm just perceiving. And so is everyone else. <laughs> and the space in between all of that is the conversation of understanding and that your, you know, your map of consciousness is only broadened by listening and understanding and hearing what other people are telling you about their world, which only they have access to as far as the subtle impressions of their own reality. Well, and that's reward-based learning, right? So, I can tell you one thing. Uh, there's a, and they even say this back in the suttas. Uh, what's one cause of suffering? Attachment to views, right? Mm -hmm. And you just described. So there's that there's that suffering element. When we can wake up to that, we're like, oh wow, that's actually painful. And then what you just beautifully described that that connection, the curiosity, the wanting to really understand somebody else's point of view. Oh, that actually feels a lot better. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's infinite too. You know, it's, it's all, um, it's just like people are like these living 
art pieces and they're just painting this picture of the world that they can see. And if you just are quiet and actually listen, you just can learn more and more and more and more, you know, and people are always telling you exactly how they see the world. You know, you just have to be able to be able to hear it. Right. <laughs> but, you know, but the, the trick there is getting your own um, ideology out of your the way before you can you can see that because, um, again, you know, it's like the, the ideology that we're all running around seeking for is the one that we're using to seek all the ideologies. You know, it's yeah. like, um, <laughs> it's like, so realize that, you know, we'll, you know, we'll never be satiated by finding, you know, other people's theories in a lot of ways, as far as to, ones that are the sum total of our, you know, life system and our, our reality in a lot of ways. It's, we have to recognize that what we'll find peace in and comfort is our, the, confirmation and allowing and acceptance of our own you know existential and perceptual worldview and position and then from there you know it's we start seeing everything in ourselves and so instead of trying to go find us and everything and not acknowledging things that aren't us you know or or cal- you know, categorizing those as something negative or or uh, uh aggressive towards our ego you know yeah well, ego protection is exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Certainly is. Certainly is. Um, that's you just gotta let that that guy uh, just drive the car, Jeeves. Just drive the car. I'll do everything else. You know. <laughs> You're, I, I had uh, some friends that were that um, owned a, a, a isolation tank, a, a sensory deprivation tank, and they were using it every day and for a couple hours a day. And after a couple of weeks, they said they were just found themselves just sort of like a blob laying around on the couch. And they said, you know what? I realized, it really made me realize that my drive is really where my ego comes. That's where my ego's in charge of the driving aspect of this animal machine. Um, so it is necessary. You know, it's just a matter of, of mastering it so that it's um, working for you instead of running the show. Well, and I would even say if that ego, you know, if we get out of our own way, it frees up a lot of energy to be curious and connected. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't say that those are ego bound or even driven by ego. The connection, you know, is the opposite of ego. Is is the opposite of self protection. Uh, even experientially, right? Ego says, "Oh, I got a like. I'm contracted because I'm excited about that." Or, "Oh, somebody slammed my post, and I feel contracted because I have to defend myself." That curiosity the connections the opposite it's expanding it's it you know literally we're we're expanding our boundaries and and Mm -hmm. even dissolving those boundaries between ourselves and others so i don't know how much of that is is you know in the in the everyday sense of ego ego bound but it'd be it's certainly something to explore more experientially well i wonder if it's ego bound in the sense that i have this theory that if you track back like almost every human action and move, it, it can be tracked to the fact that we know we're going to die, you know, <laughs> and this is sort of <laughs> half joking, half not joking. But, um, you know, I, I feel like some of those uh, themes of curiosity and the different qualities you described actually do serve the ego in the sense that it it softens the 
the existential yelp that's deep down buried uh, you know a thousand layers inside of all of us about the fact that we're facing an infinite oblivion so if we can become more curious more open and more connected with all things it actually gives our animal um part of us our biological part that's worried about the propagation of our own meanness um it gives that some sense of peace to some degree yes absolutely absolutely Matt, I really appreciate you coming on and, and just sharing all of your ideas and your thoughts and and uh, your your beautiful theories, practices, and all the work that you're doing, man. It's, it's really beautiful stuff. Thank you. Yeah. And um, one more time, just for uh, people who are listening, if you like to tell people the name of your book, and I guess is Amazon the best place for them to go find that? Oh, yeah. It's called The Craving Mind, uh, f- and from cigarettes to smartphones to love, why we get hooked and how we can break it, bad habits. Amazon is probably the best place. And if folks are interested in checking out some of our app-based uh, mindfulness training, it's all evidence-based um, for stress and emotional eating. Uh, the app is called Eat Right Now, and it, you can find it on goeatrightnow.com or just download it to your phones. Uh, and then was, we have one for smoking, too, uh, called Craving to Quit. And we'll have one shortly, actually. We're in the final stages of pilot testing, uh, one for anxiety. How, mm. how do you like this title, uh, Unwinding Anxiety? What do you think of that? <laughs> I like it. I good. like it. I like it. That's that's a good one. Um man, well that that makes me wish we would have talked about anxiety a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> we can do it again maybe sometime early in the fall um cuz it we've been learning a ton from our pilot testers and uh I think we could spend a whole hour talking about the it, the nuances mm-hmm. of anxiety, especially as it relates to, you know, this like you're talking about this fear of death. So, uh lots to talk about maybe some other time Ooh, i love that i'm i'm kind of fascinated with anxiety because i had a lot of it whenever i was younger <laughs> yeah, me too <laughs> okay all right jetson well thank you again man i appreciate it oh thank you this was really fun <laughs>